0: James Boyce tells a story of a friend who had a job stringing wires. He would string wires to each other. And to do this, he had to climb the telephone pole. And he said, in order to climb the pole, he said, you have to lean back. Lean back on the broad leather belt that surrounds you in the pole. He said it will hold you. You need to lean back or else your spikes will not press into the wood and hold you. And then you will slip. And my friend listened and then tried it, but he was afraid to lean back so his spikes would not enter the wood and he got nowhere at all. At least he got the ideal. He leaned back and the spikes in his shoes took hold and he began to climb. Unfortunately, when he was about three feet off the ground, he got worried about falling and thought that he can improve things somewhat if he just pulled himself closer to the pole. But when he did this, the spikes came out and he slipped back down the pole just a short way and he got covered with splinters in the process. You know, when you think about that idea of leaning back and putting your spikes into the pole it, pole, it really is the same spiritually. God has ordered your life and my life in such a way that we cannot climb spiritually without leaning on him. And sometimes God's going to allow us to slip He's going to even allow us at times to miserably fall. He allows this for this purpose that we can come to trust him and not ourselves. Today I want to look in the word of God with you at the presumptuous pride of the apostle Peter. What a great spokesman Peter was for the Lord. I think you would have to agree with me if you've spent any time in the New Testament that no one made greater pronouncements than Peter, and yet no one inserted his foot in his mouth more than Peter. Would you agree? In fact, you remember some of the accounts, just like in Mark chapter 8, 27, when he looked to his disciples and he said, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, from the disciples, he said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who answered him in Mark chapter 8, that you are the Christ. I mean, Peter just ripped through with clarity, and he declared who. The person of Jesus Christ is and was. He's the Messiah. You remember in the gospel that we're studying in John chapter 6, after the Lord Jesus Christ got through a very, very difficult discourse where he made some very difficult statements to a large crowd. And the Bible says in John 6 that they were not walking with him anymore. In other words, they were following him for the wrong reasons. And as soon as he said something that cut to the quick of their heart, they were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus turned to the twelve and he said, Do you also want to go away? Do you? And it was Peter who replied and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal what life. No one made greater statements than the apostle Peter. But at the same time, he was the only disciple who thought it was his duty to rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember after the Lord told the disciples of his coming death and crucifixion that he would be delivered up to the leaders and the chief priests and the Pharisees and they would kill him? It says in Matthew chapter 16 that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That always gets me. It's like he was in a crowd and Peter said, Hey Jesus, come here for a second. He, he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, what? Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. There was another time in Peter's life, you remember When he saw the Lord out on the water, walking on the water. And Peter made this verbal statement, Lord, if it is you, then bid me to come out with you on the water. And Jesus just gave him the command, come. And you remember Peter stepped out of the boat, and he began to walk on that sea of Galilee that I've been upon. And he was walking, and you remember the account. He began to look around, and he took his eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, And he miserably began to sink and the Lord had to pull him up out of the water. He lacked faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I I don't want to be so hard on Peter. There was 11 other guys that were still inside the boat, however. But Peter, this is Peter. No one in all of the scripture is so praised and so blessed and yet no one is so slammed And rebuked all at the same time. There's a medical condition for this. It's called foot and mouth disease. Have you heard of it? Maybe some of us have struggled with that. As we come to the text this morning, Peter would miserably fell in this text. Let me turn you to John chapter 13 and bring you to this very short account. Here in John 13, and we'll just finish the chapter today, and then we'll turn our corner to John 14 as he continues in the upper room. But in in John 13, I'd like to read just the text, 36 through 38, a familiar text, and walk you through this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterward. Then Peter said, Lord, why can we not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. There's our text. No doubt you're familiar with the triple denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, just as we look at it here, just reasoning with you, it is a prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. He doesn't go into the account here, though I'll take you into it just so that we can fill the picture out. He will deny the Lord at this prophecy later in John chapter 18. Let me just set the context for you just for a moment just to remind you where the lord jesus said this to him remember he is in the upper room discourse he is in what some call the farewell discourse he entered into jerusalem on sunday riding on a colt and they all shouted hosannas to the king to the messiah but quickly in the events of those of that week it, it turned on him didn't it to the point where he would be crucified on friday I just remind you again, it's still Thursday night. So he is approximately maybe 12 hours before his death, maybe 15. It is late into the evening on Thursday night. You remember that he's in that upper room. He will go out shortly and he will go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he will be praying with his disciples where they will come and arrest him. But I just set the context. It's Thursday night you remember that Judas has just taken the morsel. In fact, look at 13:30. After receiving the morsel of bread, it says he immediately went out and John adds it was night. It was night not only literally, it was night spiritually in the darkness of Judas's heart. There they were at a friendship, at a table of friendship taking the last Passover and Judas leans over and gives the morsel. Jesus gives it to Judas, and Judas takes it, but then quickly goes out. You remember, none of the disciples knew exactly why he went out. But as he goes out in the darkness, the command then was given. Do you remember last week in 1334 and 35, he gave that brilliant command for the disciples to love one another. Now, I believe when he gave that command to the disciples, as you put all the accounts together, they are still in that upper room. In fact, I believe after he gave the command to one another, I believe they're still reclining at that table that I told you about. Not a table that we have, but a low sitting table. They're reclining, not in a chair, but on their left elbow. And they're reclining and they were taking the food with the right. And I believe as John the Apostle was on our Lord's right, I believe Judas was immediately on his left. So they're still in that upper room, they're still at that Passover dinner, except now instead of there being 12, there is now 11, there is an empty place at that low table because Judas has gone out into the night. He had already betrayed the Lord by setting it up, we'll sell him for 30 pieces, but he goes out at this point to get the exact time and he would know that the Lord Jesus would be in the garden of Gethsemane and so he goes, sets up that evil deed. And so as Lord declares that his death is near, you say, in what way? Look at 32. He said, or in 31, when he had gone out in 31, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So he's just speaking very personally, very privately with the disciples. And now Peter (laughs) will speak again. And sometimes when he speaks, we tend to say, oh, no. So here's what I want to look at this morning with you. I want to look at Peter's presumptuous pride And I want to look at it in three scenes with you. Three scenes. There's going to be first Peter's investigation. Hey, where are you going? Then secondly, there's going to be Peter's prediction that I'm going to lay my life down for you. And then there's going to be Peter's defection where the rooster will crow. And it says, as it says there, um, will not crow until you have denied me three times. There's an investigation there is a prediction, and there is a defection. But in all of that, it's not just about Peter. There is a profound lesson for you this morning. There is a profound lesson for high school students today. There's a profound lesson for college students. There's a profound lesson for elder teams and deacon teams and deaconesses, and there's a profound lesson for you Young men in business, and you older men in business, and you younger mothers, and you singles, there is a profound lesson for us to be learned by this great event. This would be the time where Peter would deny our Lord. But let me take you into these scenes, and we'll look at it together. First, there's Peter's investigation. Peter's investigation. Now you'll note that it says there in 36, look at it with me. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going. You cannot follow me now. Now I I just want you to note something there. This is somewhat of selective hearing. Peter's going to make an investigation. Where are you going? The reason that he says that is would you just drop your eyes back to the text in verse 33. He had just told him in that upper room, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you that where I am going, you cannot come. And then verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. So this is what I call selective hearing there. Somebody's speaking to you, and you don't hear what they're saying to you. You just remembered something that was said. It's as though Peter, just so discouraged in his own right, completely washed over the command to love one another, and a new commandment that the Lord gave to this investigation. Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? He selectively hears. He doesn't hear, evidently, the the great command. And Jesus, in his coming death, of course, by his crucifixion, is going to his father. And the Lord just says there, Peter, you cannot follow me at this time. You cannot follow me now. Only the Lord, the sinless lamb of God, could atone for the sins of the people on the cross. And only could the Lord atone even for Peter's sin, where I'm going To the cross and then to ascend to my Father, you cannot come at this point. You say, Well, Scott, what's going on here? I just think, beloved, the disciples couldn't understand, even at this point, the Lord's declaration that he was going to die. I don't think they could understand that declaration of his death with their own preconceived concept of the coming kingdom and the Old Testament promises that would come to them by way of Messiah. I still think these disciples were thinking about a temporal kingdom. I think they thought the Messiah would come and set this kingdom up. And so even though he's been telling of his coming death and saying, where I'm going, you cannot come, Peter is still in that midst. Where are you going? Jesus, we, I, these men, we want you to set the kingdom up now. And so our Lord just says to him in 36, Peter, you cannot come. But look at the text in verse 36. He says, but you, speaking directly to Peter, but you will follow afterward. Now, what's he talking about there? You can't come now, but one day you will will come. What is that? Well, I think he's referring to Peter's own death. You can't come to my death as I sacrifice for the sins of the world, but you will follow after. You say, well, Scott, why do you think it's Peter's death? Look over in your Bible in John 21. Let me just show you this. Let me back that up. You remember there, this is after his death. This is after his resurrection. This is as he's appearing to the disciples. Jesus would appear to Peter in uh, 2115. But if you glance your eyes down at 2118, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, to Peter, 2118, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So what's, what's he talking about? It's interpreted in the next verse for you in 19. This he said to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So here the Lord, he says, the Lord, where are you going? He says, well, you can't come now, but afterward you're gonna come afterward, you're going to follow me. You say, well, uh, how did Peter respond to our Lord's answer? You can't come now, but afterward, you will. Well, Peter wasn't pleased with the response by our Lord. You say, why? Look back at chapter 13. He wasn't pleased by that response. In 1337, Peter said to him, Lord, why? And again, he, he asked him again, almost like a, I want to say like a a child would ask their parent who didn't get what they wanted for the first time, Lord, why can I not follow you? And then this statement, I will lay my life down for you. And so this leads from Peter's investigation to secondly, Peter's prediction. He actually predicts and declares there that I'm going to lay my life down for you for you. You know, why would Peter say that? I mean, you know the account, what's going to happen here, but we're looking back on it. I want to be fair to Peter. I think Peter said this out of love for Christ. I think in Peter's heart is such a love for the Savior, such an affection for the Savior, that just speaking right at that moment in time, not calculating like Judas did, Peter said, I'm going to lay my life down for you. I mean, don't forget, in just a few hours in the garden, when they come to arrest him, he cuts the ear off of Malchus. There is a sense within Peter, before we're too hard on him, that I just think he dearly loved the Savior. I think he was saying to Jesus as best as he understood, I'm loyal to you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Which is, you would agree with me, looking back for us, ironic. He would not lay down his life for the Lord. It would actually be the Lord who would lay down his life for Peter as the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, But Peter obviously is so strong at this point that somewhere in there mixed in his affection and his love is pride, is presumptuous pride. He even said this in Matthew's gospel in 26.33 as you put all the accounts to, together. He says, though all will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So he says I'm going to lay my life down for you. And in Matthew 26 he says I will never fall away. And then when you go to the next account in the gospel in Mark 13 excuse me 14:31 he said and it says this emphatically if I must die with you I will not deny you. And then it says in Mark you could see it there in 1431, they all said the same thing. In other words, whatever Peter said, the disciples are going to say. And what's interesting about that little phrase there, when he said emphatically, it just means that he kept saying it. He just kept saying it. It almost like became a little chant for him. But I would tell you, and I would tell us at the same time, it's to, to our own hearts, Peter had no idea of the darkness presiding over the scene. This is where his pride came in. And you'll see this come out. He didn't know really what was going on. He didn't understand the prevailing darkness presiding over even this event. He was so strong, I would say, in his flesh that he lost objectivity. You say, what do you mean the darkness provided over the, you know, presiding over the scene? Luke 22. You remember when the Lord said this? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan came after this guy. Peter, he probably was not even aware of that. So confident in his own strength, That he was not even aware. I mean, just think about that. Satan, that's what it says, demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He says that when you have turned again, he said, I want you to strengthen your brothers. In fact, then Peter said to him, Lord, again, here in this prediction, if you will, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He was so convinced of his commitment to Christ that he presumptuously proclaimed that he would never fall away. And he kept on saying, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You say, well, how did the Lord respond to this prideful prediction? Well, look at the text. It's there in 38. He answered him. And I wish I can catch the tone inflection of this. And I don't, I don't really know if you can catch the tone inflection. But look what he said. Will you lay, your, lay down your life for me? I don't know if the Lord just said it softly. Or if the Lord between the white spaces was saying really? <laughs> really, Peter? Serious? Are, are you kidding me? I mean, he doesn't say that, so don't. But he, he just, he, he's, but you can see the rhetorical question there. Will you lay your life down for me? Look again at 38. Truly, truly, Amen and amen is the thought. I say to you, in other words, emphatically, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Wow. Just step back with me a minute. Remember, the disciples are at the table. (laughs) They're leaning at the table like this. Maybe, maybe, is Peter the defector? I mean, he said that in front of all of the disciples. Our Lord omnisciently knew that far from Peter laying his life down for Jesus, he would that very night try to save his own life and cowardly deny that he was even a disciple. Jesus emphasized the certainty of this denial. Truly, truly, I mean... If you're one of the 11, this is stunning. And this is the leader of the disciples because they all said the same thing in the previous passage. You will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. You will deny me again and again. And then he says, you're gonna do it. And you understand as I'm reading this, it's a prophecy. You say a prophecy because he's gonna tell Peter what's gonna happen And then he's going to tell them how it's going to happen. Look at the text again in 38. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. I think we're familiar with that. Let me add to it a little bit and just push you a little bit on the interesting part for me in the rooster crowing. I think we get it. He denied the three times, the Lord three times, and then the rooster crowed, but The Jewish people divided the night into four parts, okay? There was a part called evening. And evening took place from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Then there was a time called midnight. And midnight in Jewish thinking took place from 9 to 12. And then there was a time in the nighttime that was called the morning, and the morning was 3 to 6. But I just wanted to say this. Excuse me, let me back up with you. 12 to 3 at night was called the cock crowing time. In other words, you've got evening, you've got midnight. Thirdly, you've got cock crowing. And then morning was 3 to 6. Jesus said before the cock crows. In other words, and you can't get specific when that, cock would crow, but we knew it happened at a certain time in the night. They designated us this as such. So he designated from the time from 12 to 3 in the morning, and that is exactly what will be realized as I'll turn you there in a second. But Peter, so confident in his own self, in his own flesh, in his own thinking, that he reveals his presumptuous pride. Let me just build out on this third point with three subpoints. His presumptuous pride is revealed in three ways. Okay? Three ways. Number one, he contradicted the Savior. He contradicted the Savior. You, you say in what sense? Well, certainly in Mark 8 and again in Mark 14. You say, well, how did he contradict the Savior? I mean, think about it. The Lord said, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up, delivered over by the chief priest, the, the Pharisees, and they're going to kill me, but I'll come back in three days. And he pulled the Lord aside and said, may it never be. That's not, and again, probably out of love, but suppose love, but pride in there. That, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus had to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Savior. I mean, just think about it. It's wrong if parents, if children contradict their parents, but Peter does it to the Lord. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But he contradicted the Savior, number one. Secondly, he considered himself Superior, he considered himself superior. I mean, in some ways, he just kind of sold out the other eleven. He he, in essence, said, "I don't know about these guys, but as for me, though all fall away, I will not." Now, there's a little background on that. That just a little bit later, Jesus is going to say, "All of you, strike the shepherd and the sh- and the." And they will flee, right? The sheep are gonna flee. And it was an Old Testament prophecy. And so he just told the disciples that all of them are gonna flee. And Peter says, Though all fall away, I will not. In other words, he considered himself superior. I'm the exception, he says. Jesus, listen, when these others bail out, I will be brave. And regardless of these other dudes, You can count on me, Jesus, though I'll fall away, I'm not. He he actually thought, beloved, that he was superior. And then thirdly, this, not only did he contradict the Savior, but consider himself superior, but thirdly, you understand this, he was confident in his own strength. And there's no other way to, to look at it that I will not fall away. He said in Mark's gospel, I will not deny you. And I will lay lay down my life for you. I mean, one thing that he certainly failed to grasp, and at times we do, do we not, is John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Somehow he slipped from love for the Savior to his own strength. And here's what I want to say to you. When you, or when I, become so overconfident in your own strength, you fail. Here it is for us and for Peter. You fail to pray. You fail to pray. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? Do you remember just in a little bit, the accounts go this way as he steps out of that upper room on his way down through the Kidron Valley up into the Garden of Gethsemane and he warned his disciples to what? Pray. Luke twenty two forty. he said, pray that you may not enter into what? Temptation. He's saying you need to pray. Then a second time, while they're in that Garden of Gethsemane, in Mark 14, 37 through 38, he found them sleeping, it says. And it's interesting that he said to Peter, and he didn't call him Peter, Rock, that new name, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour Watch and pray that you may not enter into, what? Temptation. Listen, when you become overconfident in your own strength, you fail to rely on the Lord, and I'm speaking to you and to my own hearts, just as it's true here. In fact, Jesus said there, how indeed true, then and now. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is, what? It's weak, so a third time in the gospel, in Luke twenty two forty six 46, he said, why are you sleeping? And he said, rise and pray a third time that you may not enter into temptation. Now listen, I don't want to play a numbers game here, but there is a triple denial by pre- Peter. And there is a triple exhortation for us and for Peter and for these disciples to be in prayer. I mean, Peter's problem, beloved, it's not hard to recognize, is that when he should have been active in prayer, he was passive and sleeping. In fact, is this not why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without what? Ceasing. Because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. You say, Well, Scott, what happened? I don't feel like we should wait to John 18. Would you turn in your Bible to John 18? I'll tell you exactly what happened. Look over there in John 18. He's in that upper room discourse, certainly in 14, 15, and 16. He launches in to that high priestly prayer in 17. And then all these events unfold very, very quickly at his betrayal and his arrest. But you can see it in the text. If you would pick it up at 1815, let me just read it to you. Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Probably John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known by the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And brought Peter in. I don't know how all this worked. I've stood in that area where they believe this took place. But obviously a disciple had a connection with someone inside that area. He went out, told that person that was at the door. And then they brought Peter in. So all the other disciples fled. They will also flee. But somehow during this arrest, during the arrest, Jesus of Jesus, here's a disciple, and now they bring Peter in, which is interesting. Pick up the text at 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not I mean, we get it, just a bald face lie. I'm not. Verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter was also with them. It's just kind of gross to be honest with you. Standing and warming himself. In other words, he's left the fold of the disciples. They fled. And now he finds himself somehow in this courtyard. And he's at the fire with them. It's almost a picture of what happens when you begin to separate from the Lord. You become friends with the world. And when you become friends with the world, you become an enemy of God. I don't, it's amazing. This is Peter. He's standing there warming himself. Now look. If you will, again, it says the high priest questioned him about his disciples and so forth. And so he, he would go on in other places. But I need to draw you back down to verse 25. Now, Simon, 1825, was again standing and warming himself. The stories picked back up. So they said to him, you are not one of his disciples, are you? And then he used this word. He denied it and said, I am not. Strike two. And then this verse twenty six, and one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, isn't that how it goes? A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it, and at once a rooster what? Crowed. There it is. Three times. Maybe for me, I mean, we're just reading it, but it's this next text. I just, it just, I, I, it strikes me. But Peter said, probably the third denial. Man, maybe in the modern vernacular, dude, huh, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he's still speaking, the what? The rooster crowed. And then this is the frightening part, the next phrase. They must have been close enough. And the Lord turned and, can you imagine this? Looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Now Luke doesn't tell you What happened? The other gospel does. It's not much more elaborate other than to say that Peter went out and what? He wept. Just was crushed. And all I know is somehow where he was, where he was standing by the fire, Jesus is undergoing trial, and that rooster crows, and the Lord and Peter's eyes met. I mean, what happened To the bravado of the one who said he would die with Jesus? What happened to the man with the bravado that said, I will never deny you? What happened with the man in the modern vernacular who had leadership swag? I mean, these other guys maybe, but not me. Do you remember what Paul said? You can finish the sentence. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he, what? fall pride the presumptuous pride of the apostle peter here's what jonathan edwards said and i'm moving in to this for our own heart as well he said pride edwards said is having too high an opinion of himself edwards said that pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe the last sin that will ever be rooted out He said that pride is the worst sin. It is the most secret of all sins. There is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. He said, alas, how much pride the best has in their hearts. Pride is God's God's most stubborn enemy. He said there is no sin much like the devil as pride. It is a subtle sin. It appears in great many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected, end of quote, so true. I mean, maybe you're here this morning, and you've been blessed in your business, or maybe you've been given a place of responsibility in this church, and the devil begins to whisper in your ear, you are somebody. Look at you. People have recognized your abilities, And I would say to you, Grace Church, if we are not careful when people start praising you, pride will rise up in your hearts. And it's at these times that we can begin to rationalize. And maybe some of you can say, I can handle this relationship. We're only dating. Or you say, I can handle these medications. I'm okay. Or you might be as prideful to say, I only look at pornography once a month, but that guy over there looks at it every week. Or you might even say, my wife did this with the money, so I went out and spent this. I mean, it could work a thousand different ways. It's subtle, but beloved, it's lethal. It is a hidden desire for praise. It is a hidden desire for admiration of men. It is an insistence on being right. I mean, just never yield to anybody. Just you, 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 you always have to be right. And if you always have to be right, be careful. Because if you never have to apologize for anything, then you're never looking in in your own hearts. It's a desire to be noticed, appreciated. It's a fear of rejection. It may just be a preconceived occupation with myself, my feelings, my needs, my circumstances, my burdens, my desires, my successes, my failures. These are all, one said, the fruits of that deadly root of pride. In fact, the higher you find yourself... Climbing the ladder, whatever that ladder may be of power and influence, maybe even wealth, the more people that look up to you, the more vulnerable you are to pride, the more vulnerable you are to self-deceit, the more prone you are to be blind to your own spiritual needs and even deficiencies. Scary, isn't it? For most of us, the subtle encroachment of pride is more dangerous and maybe even more likely to render us useless to God and to others than any other kind of failure. Listen, I just stand up to here to you as a pastor and I just look at guys dropping right and left in the ministry and I'd say at the base of it is pride. Pride. It could happen to anybody. Puritan Will, William Sucker, Quoting Proverbs 8.13 said this, I hate pride and arrogance. He said, pride is a stinking dungeon in which Satan abides. Pride is not only, he said, a most hateful evil, but it is a radical evil. As all other lusts are found lodging in it, so they are found springing from it. He said, pride is a foul leprosy. Pride is a cancer within, and it is a spreading plague without. You know, gloriously, though, (laughs) the story's not finished. It'd probably be wrong if I just finished and said, let's pray, look in. (laughs) Because you know why? God wasn't finished with Peter. This is the miracle of this passage. He's not finished with Peter. You say he's not. No, you remember in John 21 when Jesus made breakfast for him at the shore. Remember that? And three different times. Is there a number association there? Three times he said, you're going to deny me. Three times he warned them, I want you to pray. The spirit is willing. And then when he restored Peter three different times, he said, do you love me? Do you love me? do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Isn't that glorious? He wasn't done with Peter. And I just want to encourage you, he's not done with you. God will take a man who I believed in the depth of his heart loved him But he got himself in the way with his own pride and his own thinking and his own confidence, and he miserably failed. Listen, you guys know this. This guy is the preacher on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls were saved. Isn't that marvelous? He took this man, broke this man down, showed him and revealed his pride and then began to build him back himself back up but he preached at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. In Acts chapter three and all through the book of Acts, he healed the lame man. Then in Acts chapter 10, he took the gospel to the Gentiles in chapter 10 and you know, on it goes and what's most touching to me, this is the same guy who wrote two books one called First Peter and the second called Second Peter. This floored me. Would you just look over to First Peter? This is the guy who denied the Lord. And you ever see what he says? I mean, you know what he says. Our ladies are studying this book, but this is the guy. This is the man who would be humbled. You say humbled? How so? I think you know this. It's it's not in a chapter and verse, but at least it's recorded in church history. As you turn to First. Peter, it's not recorded there, but church history records, do you remember all of the apostles died with the exception of the apostle John? And church history records that Peter loved his Savior so much at the end of his life, certainly not here in the Gospels, but as he went forward and preached and became a massive, mighty leader. But he loved the Lord so much that he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy To die in the same fashion that his Savior did. This is a tremendous hope for us but I mean I, I'm just open the other day and I looked at this this is the guy that said this blessed be 1-3 the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you and maybe this meant something to him personally in verse 5 who were kept by God God's power who are being guarded through faith and a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, he loved the Savior. This is the guy, glance your eyes down at 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, he must have met this from experience, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace. That will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Wow. In fact, if you even just go over to 1 Peter chapter 5. Do you remember he said there? He said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He said, shepherd the flock of God. Maybe he was remembering that breakfast when the Lord said, feed my sheep. He said, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have it, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown crown of glory. And then this one, likewise, you who are younger, he said, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to what? The humble. So on the one hand, this passage is frightening. On the other, passage, on the other hand, this passage is encouraging. Listen, I, I just want to encourage you. You, me, you need to lean into Jesus. You need to lean back on that belt in the opening illustration. Put your spikes in that wood. Lean back in your trust of the Lord. And I would say, pray, pray, pray. And have a healthy sense of self-awareness that you may be dealing with something even right now that is not with flesh and blood our battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in dark places but let me just encourage you okay you know it well first corinthians 10:13 no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man god is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability But with every temptation, he'll provide you a way of what? Escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, it could be that we're in worse shape than Peter because we have the Holy Spirit, John 16, who will be given after his death, resurrection, and ascension into glory. Listen, be careful of presumptuous pride, amen? Make sure that you find yourself leaning in to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you...